to FEPS Talks, the podcast series of the Foundation for European Progressive Studies. Find out more about us on feps-europe.eu. Welcome to today's FEPS Talks. The song we just heard set the tone of today's podcast. This song, indeed, although it was recorded in Argentina, echoes a reality present around the world. It symbolizes the anger, the pain, and the fear that women have to face in front of gender-based violence. But it also tells us the story of their hope for change and for a better future how their shared experience naturally fosters a great sense of sisterhood among women in solidarity. As we are just marking the International Day for the Elimination of Violence Against Women on the 25th of November, and as a contribution to the 16 days of activism against gender-based violence launched by the United Nations under the global theme Orange the World, Fund, Respond, Prevent and Collect, this podcast will concentrate on this very serious issue whilst exploring what can be done to put an end to this scourge. Because yes, as we are recording this podcast, 137 women are still killed every day globally by an intimate partner. One in three women experience physical or sexual violence in the European Union. And 43% of women experience psychological abuse by an intimate partner. This constant and blatant form of discrimination women face every day and everywhere across the world, regardless of their background, not only concerns gender-based violence, uh, such as domestic violence, rape or femicide, but also sexual and sexist harassment at school, at work, in public spaces. And more and more, this form of violence has also moved online as well, leaving victims no room for escape at all at any time. As the leading progressive think tank, FEPS therefore could not do otherwise than putting this crucial issue at the core of its work on gender equality. My name is Leticia Thyssen, I'm FEPS gender equality policy advisor, and today we could not be in a better company to explore this extremely important topic than with our special guest of the day. Her name is Pirko Malamaki, and she comes from Finland. Good morning, I'm delighted to be here, although the theme we are discussing is deadly serious, as you noted. I'm from a country that has a long history of working against this scrouge of women, male violence against women in all its forms. And I'm also representing disability movement that for disabled women and girls, the risk of violence experienced in partnerships or in even in institutions is even higher. So I'm delighted to be with you and, and dealing with this important issue. 
Let me wish you a very warm welcome, dear Pirko, uh, both as representative of the European Women's Lobby, but also of the European Disability Forum. To start on a general note and to give our listeners uh, a bit of a background, I would like to ask you uh, if you could help us understand the, the general uh, context that we are talking of. Uh, so could you tell us a bit more about what is the extent and actual gravity of gender-based violence, particularly in the European context? The numbers you already saw did it give us an insight as to how prevalent it is, how often it happens and how it touches uh, women in different situations. For example, um, one in four women experience physical or sexual violence during pregnancy. And one in three women has experienced physical or sexual violence since the age of 15. So this is really a very, very persistent problem, very long-term problem, and it's even now being exacerbated or made worse by the COVID situation. So this is the time to relaunch the campaigns to end violence against women and to also ask our decision-makers to to do their utmost against this growing and serious trend, even in times of COVID and particularly in times of COVID. Yes, indeed, very much. And this is precisely uh, the context in which we are living now, because in 2020, we know uh, that the year came not only with a global pandemic, but it also came with a shadow pandemic, as uh, the UN has also called it, with the exacerbation of uh, domestic violence so, as a result uh, of the response measures uh, to curb the COVID-19. Could you perhaps elaborate a bit on uh, what this has meant for women who have been facing uh, an increased risk of uh, gender-based violence during the lockdown? The major problem has been that the lockdown and isolation measures create an enabling environment for abusers. And there have been more incidents of violence, physical, psychological, sexual. But even worse than that is that the victims and survivors have less access to help and protection. So there's further isolation and this further isolation can have serious mental consequences. And this situation is more extreme even for women who are facing multiple forms of discrimination. So many of the support systems and help systems, even shelters, have been closed or have been reduced in their availability in this time of increasing need. That is the main issue, that we need to improve the support systems and protection systems and shelter systems like they did in France where you could, in pharmacies, you could alert to a situation of uh, domestic violence. So uh, there are ways to find a way to have these support systems, but they need to be built up at this very crucial situation. And Perhaps one could also say that uh, one of the other side effects of COVID-19 on women's rights has been that it had basically had to change the way that women would normally mobilize around the 25th of November 
commemorating the assassination to the three Mirabal sisters in the Dominican Republic in 1960, what we know as the International Day uh, for the Elimination of uh, Violence Against Women. Nevertheless, uh, we, we also saw that this did not prevent women to find creative ways to actually get together and still stand up for this cause. Uh, as a matter of fact, the issue of gender-based violence has incrementally uh, gained attention and visibility. Uh, and one of our latest papers uh, that we have just published uh, together with Fondation Jean Jaurès focusing on the issue of femicide precisely highlights how crucial the role of women's movements and feminist organization is in leading this fight. And in that case, particularly in uh, leading to a recognition of, uh, of the concept of uh, femicides. So clearly, women's movements uh, have an important role to, uh, to play here. Could you tell us a bit more about what feminist movements actions are uh, focusing on to counter gender-based violence? And perhaps also, what is uh, the role of the European women's uh, lobby in, uh, in that regard? Well, European women's lobby have been, has been working actively together with other civil society actors to try and to try and pro- promote the ratification and the effective uh, inclusive implementation of the Istanbul Convention, which is a real strong legislative instrument on this issue. Uh, of violence and domestic violence uh, against women in Europe. So to fight for these new instruments, these new tools, and their effective uh, effective use and inclusive use is a key point. We, For that purpose, we have uh, relaunched the petition on the 25th of November, uh, Rise Up Against Violence, and I would uh, call everyone... Uh, We are already at almost 190,000 signatures of the 250,000 needed. It's a call for an urgent ratification and broad implementation of the Istanbul Convention. So relaunching this is to make a final push again to the decision makers to take on these new tools, these commonly agreed tools, legal tools, and also to continue this work in the European framework with a strong implementation directive. Indeed, we know that the European Union has placed uh, feminist issues at the core of its agenda, uh, and the new EU gender equality strategy for 2020-25 has made uh, the accession of the European Union to the Istanbul Convention one of its priorities. For those of us listening to uh, to this podcast and who might not be so familiar with uh, what the Istanbul Convention is actually about, could you tell us in a, in a nutshell uh, what this Istanbul Convention is consisting of? It's a legally binding treaty to criminalize multiple forms of violence against women which includes physical and psychological violence, sexual violence, harassment and rape, stalking, FGM, that's female genital mutilation, forced marriages, forced abortions, forced sterilization. So it's a legal instrument that, that strongly condemns and makes these forms of gender-based violence and domestic violence uh, criminal. And it also, apart from criminalizing, it requires the adoption of necessary legislative and other measures to ensure that the victims of violence have access to services that would 
facilitate their recovery from violence, including healthcare and social services. So this address is not only to prevent violence and prosecute victims, but also, and most importantly, to assist and, and uh, help help protect the victims. We actually know that uh, the road to, towards uh, the, the accession to the Istanbul Convention by the European Union might not be that easy. What are the challenges that, that the European Union is confronted with and how can these be overcome? I think the best way to overcome them is to, re- is to make the policymakers aware of the reality of the prevalence of the violence and the urgent need to act against it together in a comprehensive framework that addresses both the perpetrators uh, and the victims and the very important issue of prevention and support. I think the main issue now is to use facts against the backlash that we are seeing in some parts of Europe this issue has been politicized in some way and it has been taken out of context to to try and create a false impression of what it's actually doing and this is what we need to counter with uh, with a strong message that this is protecting women against male violence and uh, whilst most of the efforts now are also focused on uh, actually accessing Uh, the Istanbul Convention. How can we make sure that in a second stage the the convention is also properly implemented on the national level? And this needs implementation legislation, a review of existing legislation to see how it how the gaps can be addressed, how the situation can be improved, so that there is access to justice. Uh, for the victims uh, and that the perpetrators are brought to justice the and also the in all implementation it's also an issue of money we need to include in the multi-annual frameworks and in the national budgets enough money for awareness raising campaigns and for the victim support systems and also to support and uh, educate the the judiciary in in dealing with these issues. So we need a multi-pronged approach to all actors. And uh, you you mentioned it earlier, but um, the the convention uh, is quite crucial in the sense that it provides an important support uh, to the to the victims of uh, gender-based violence, uh, and that is something that uh, always come back comes back in uh, most of the policy recommendations to uh, to stop this phenomenon. Uh, but how can we make sure that that these measures uh, are also applicable to all women and that they are inclusive uh, to women in the fullest diversity? Because we know that uh, women are not just one uh, homogeneous uh, group uh, of people. Uh, these uh, these people are also facing very very different realities. So how can we make sure that, uh, that this uh, this also apply to uh, to them? It is important from the disability movement point of view, it is always important that the decision makers are aware of that diversity and are aware of the 
that women from different backgrounds and minority backgrounds uh, might have uh, different problems accessing these services. From the disability movement, uh, we are referring to the Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities that uh, that very clearly puts out the issue of access to information, access to justice, so that the barriers for people with different disabilities, barriers to information, physical barriers to assistance systems are gradually being removed. So, uh, and how this is to be realized, I think the best way to do that is to work together with the the authorities and the civil society organizations to pull their expertise and uh, create and plan for a more inclusive, more accessible, more easily accessible uh, systems of assistance, including the information about this. Uh, That has been, for the disability movement, a major barrier that, uh, for instance, uh, people who need plain language, who need assistance in in accessing will have that assistance. And for us, that is crucial. And that can be, I think, best created if there is cooperation and and pooling of knowledge also from the civil society organizations so that disability movement, women movement, and other minorities can work together and create as inclusive systems as possible. And uh, perhaps following up on the on the previous question, what does it actually mean to apply an intersectional approach to combat discrimination? For example, uh, the shelters of violence for victims of uh, violence, how accessible are they? Can you uh, come there and be someone who uses sign language or, uh, or can you even find out if, your shelter is accessible. In my country, Finland, we have fought a long time to have at least an audit of the existing shelters so that women with disabilities would know where they could physically go. And in the time of COVID, we have have tried to foster, foster systems of assistance that would be accessible even in times of lockdown, for example, the hotlines that they can uh, that they can be accessed by people with uh, people who are using sign language, for example. So many of the organizations have been involved in cooperation measures to try and bring about change, but it's very slow, and it's also something that cannot be realized without proper proper planning and proper proper resource management. So it's something that costs something, but the costs have to be included in the planning, not, not that it's an afterthought when it's often more expensive to do a retrofit than to plan for an inclusive system from the start. Mm-hmm. Perhaps also broadening the the general picture and uh, going from uh, the the mainstreaming of disability across uh, gender equality policies to uh, policies at large 
what, in your opinion, needs to be to be improved in order to do so? Because we we know, for instance, that uh, the European Union is uh, planning uh, an upcoming EU disability strategy. So, do, do you think that the EU can become uh, and has the capacity to become a front runner in this regard? It has the capacity if it has the political will, and if it's if it makes the correct decisions in realizing the the Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities, and also to uh, to take seriously the needs and the uh, the need to the need to check the legislation for existing gaps and the issue to to work together i think the main tool to do that is to work together with the the policymakers the civil society to pool their expertise and pool their knowledge and also to create more uh, more inclusive data I, th- i think that's very important that many of the minority uh, mon- minority women uh, groups are very their perspective is not necessarily heard in society so it's very important that we have reviews of policies in various areas to check that there are no new gaps created And this work together also means that we need to ensure that in the coming years of the EU budget, the civil society organizations have the kind of have the necessary support from the EU to do that work. So all in all, we can we can say that uh, the the promise of equality uh, and to to leave no one behind cannot be fulfilled without uh, being inclusive uh, of society at large in its fullest diversity if we are to seriously put an end to uh, to violence against uh, against women and girls and as as a last uh, concluding note if you had to give one piece or one piece of message that you want our listeners to take away from uh, from this, this podcast what would it be in the the fight of uh, violence against women We need to be loud and united against it. We need to work together. We can, by signing up the petition and and putting more pressure to the decision makers nationally and and European level to, to keep reminding that the problem is real. It's here, it's now, it's getting worse. We need to act now. On this word, uh, let me let me very warmly thank you, uh, Pirko, for for joining us in this uh, this podcast, contributing to the to the UN uh, 16 days of action against uh, gender-based violence, which of course we are going to continue beyond even those 16 days. Uh, let us uh, keep up the fight. Uh, and yes. Also- thank you very much for inviting me and and for raising these these important issues and uh, and I'm I'm looking forward for the for the campaign and and I thank your listeners for for their support thank you indeed thank you very much also to our audience for listening 
If you liked it, make sure you share it on social media. Stay tuned with FEBS through Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and our newsletter. And if you're curious for more, make sure that you look up uh, our website and follow the Stop Gender-Based Violence publication series that FEBS has just launched together with Fondation Georges. You will find a series of articles authored by feminist academics, gender policy experts, each of them focusing on a different angle of gender-based violence. Thank you very much. Thank you for your attention. If you found our conversation interesting, do not hesitate to share it on social media with the hashtag FEPSTalks. More is yet to come. Stay tuned! <laughs>